0: In nomine Patris et Filii et Spiritus Sancti dique hiquicis et causa causam From
1: the Clock Tower Mountaineer, this is the C.S. Lewis Book Club.
2: I'm Dan. And I'm Alex. Welcome to our book club, and thank you for joining us in this hideous episode <laughs> where we have now completed the Ransom Trilogy. In this episode, we are discussing
1: some of your questions, our company of book club members,
2: and reviewing
1: some of our favorite moments from this book. And in our next
2: episode, we will be starting the screw tape letters.
1: Dun dun dun.
2: And letters, I should say letters rather than chapters, letters one through 10. I
1: was debating if I should go up on the dun-dun-dun or dun 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 because they're, you know, macrobes
2: discussing how to take us over the human beings. I heard this on the Pints with Jack podcast that apparently the first or one of the first manuscripts for the Screw Tape Letters had a little snippet about it being a translation from Ransom of the correspondence between... The macrobes, or some of the macrobes, which is such a cool tie in from, from this season to our next season. And the Screw Tape Letters is probably the book that is most commonly brought up when somebody found, finds out that we have a C.S. Lewis Book Club podcast. Uh, uh, you know, commonly what we're asked is, Are you going to do the Screw Tape Letters? <laughs> so, yes, we are. And that's what season three, still in fiction, we were going to call it the other fiction season, but that, that seems a little too boring.
1: Yeah. So we have for housekeeping, we have one of our comments from TJ Ray. What's the next book, which you just answered. Maybe you could give, when we walked in this morning, Alex had some inspiration for how we're going to structure the next couple seasons, if you wanted to share that.
2: Yeah. So we've been talking about the dialectic. And that's a broader term. I've been narrowly using it, which is just about the distinguishing the definitions. You know, we have a table in front of us. And how do we know what is table? By where table stops. And so that negative space that where the table is not is part of what's necessary for understanding table. I'm kind of talking that way because what's coming to mind is Steve Carell and Anchorman. Exactly. I love lamp. <laughs> I love table. And to, know, and to love table, I need to know what is not table. So that, in that sense, that's the way I'm using the dialectic. And we've talked about Mark Studdick's journey to conversion, starting with first, a repudiation of all that is not good. That's how he came to eventually understand what goodness is. We have that very pivotal scene in the objective room where he's instructed to stomp on the crucifix, and he didn't recognize that as good. But because of its counterposition to evil, he started to see it as good. So we're going to first start in our next season in the Screw Tape Letters, which is the program of evil. To understand, first off, it's very instructive, for what the enemies of your soul are trying to get you to think. And also because that is a good way to define goodness Hmm. by first recognizing badness, evil. And then next? And then next we're going to go to a more obscure work. It's actually Lewis's first Christian book. Called the Pilgrim's Regress.
1: You did mention on a previous episode we were going to the Pilgrim's Regress, I think. So some of our readers might have jumped ahead. Yeah, if you've if you've already started reading, great. Yeah, this one
2: this one does. I mean, it follows the pattern of, I think his named. I think it's John Bunyan. I know Bunyan for sure, but uh, there's a a book a more. I think it's 17th century. Not sure. Maybe 18th. Um, called Pilgrim's Progress about the process of conversion. C.S. Lewis titled that book a little differently because his own Christian journey started in Christianity and left it and then came back. And so we're gonna go through his philosophical journey. It's still allegorical, so we're keeping it in our fiction three season fiction series. Series. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Smeagle. <laughs> <Call them. clears throat> Is that a good time to bring up the oh. fact that my voice is still raspy, which I think is now the new normal. Yeah. It's it's now the the days where my voice is clear are the average. What's wrong with that? <laughs> yeah, nothing. This is this is the new me. So yeah. I guess this is my life now. And then from The Pilgrim's Regress, we're gonna go into one of the favorites or probably the favorite of most C.S. Lewis enthusiasts. Which is the Great Divorce? Yes, Great Divorce operates very similarly, in my mind, to um, screw tape letters. Screw tape letters, because it gives you a lot of counterpoints. Now, Great Divorce will give you positives and negatives, more acute in its definition of what it means to be a heavenly being. I probably shouldn't get into it too much. I'm just giving you the. We're just getting them pumped out. Right, Excited. Right. And then once we've, with, with all of our reservoir of Narnia and the Ransom Trilogy, and then jumping into the more personally applicable versions of these fictions, like The Screwtape Letters and The Pilgrim's Regress and, uh, and The Great Divorce, we're going to finally tackle the most intimidating of C.S. Lewis's fiction books for me, which is Till We Have Faces. Hmm. which is a retelling of the myth of the myth of cupid and psyche from the perspective of psyche's sister and uh yeah it's don't don't feel you've bad built, if
1: you've it, built this up quite a lot and <laughs> as someone who hasn't read it yet i'm appro- approaching it with intrepidation <laughs> and excitement (laughs)
2: maybe I should just say yeah we're just ending on that book because it's really bad (laughs) and I hope you hate it and if if you don't if you go through it and you're like that book was boring that's fine that was my first experience with it too So (laughs)
1: let's find that golden mean in there somewhere (laughs) okay next Alex I believe you had a review you wanted to share with our book
2: club yeah this is from Apple Podcasts and this is from Seth Bullinger. hi Seth I was thrilled to find this podcast at the exact time I began reading this trilogy. Dan and Alex have helped me parse through the many themes of the book in a thoughtful, clear way. Their insights are interesting and clearly bring a winsome approach to the Christian faith that I love. Thank you for making this podcast.
1: Well, butter my
2: biscuits. (laughs) (laughs) That makes me feel great. That's exactly what... The purpose of (laughs) us doing this is so a mission accomplished, I guess, with Seth. So, thank you, Seth. Yeah, thank you.
1: All right, let's take a break and we'll jump into some of our other questions and comments. All right, welcome back. We are going to jump into some of our comments from book club members on that hideous strength so first up we've got a audio clip from jesse
3: hi dan and alex my name is jesse i've been listening to your podcast for about a month Uh, so i did not read along Uh, i know guilty but uh, i've read through these books uh, so many times that i'm actually just enjoying kind of mentally going back through it with you uh i'm also really excited you're going through that hideous strength because i feel like of um that trilogy it was the hardest for me to wrap my head around so thank you um but man going back through this series i feel like for me i love going back and reading through and that's because i started reading them as uh, a child and from just a fun fairy tale fantasy standpoint they're wonderful and coming back as an adult uh they're deeper and deeper than i had ever realized all uh, right, So thank you for taking me even deeper. Um, and, and the question that I have, and maybe you'll talk about this, maybe it's in the episode I haven't finished yet, but is there any significance to the bear, Mr. Bultitude, or is he just a sort of fun character? I, I know he plays a role uh, towards the end of the book, but I wonder if there, is there anything, any significance to his name, any significance to the fact that he's a bear? Uh, let me know. Thank you guys for what you do.
1: Thank you, Jesse.
2: That was great. That's exactly the type of voice memo that we like to to hear. Just somebody's real experience. And I think that's like when we've talked to people, everybody kind of feels the same. They want to apologize about not being caught up with us or having read and and up to date with us. We don't really care about that. (laughs) We just love hearing that this book club is more than two dudes.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So to clarify there, what we love about Jesse's comment or audio clip, is that it's an audio clip from Jesse. <laughs>
2: <laughs> True. And the candor and the earnestness, sincerity, yes. whatever word you would like to put it to it. Um, There's a broad range of comments we accept here. So <laughs> I just listening to the natural flow of the of him talking just made, made me smile. Um, it, so we have an, an email that I think can kind of answer that question. We have a comment from Janet on our email. Oh, cool. And I'll read it. I don't know if you are still taking comments on that hideous strength, but I love how it ended with the animal kingdom coming to the rescue to defeat the powers of evil. C.S. Lewis has a beautiful way of reminding us that we are connected and interdependent with our animal friends. It seems right to think that the animals are affected by evil and would fight against it. Mr. Bultitude is my hero. That's awesome. So I th- I think that's that's part of the answer that I would give is there's some there's some goodness in nature because we're going to talk hopefully a little bit about nature in this episode and th- and I think that n- that word is it has a dual meaning. There's nature and there's nature, right? Right. What else did you get from the book about Mr. Bultitude? What do you think his significance is?
1: Well, when, in Jesse's question, uh, one thing that my mind immediately jumped to was the contrast between how the NICE is treating animals, experimenting on them, treating them as um, kind of tools that they can operate on without any thought to the pain that perhaps they're causing them, to Mr. Bultitude, who is a member of the company and <laughs> is given this name, obviously, like you wouldn't know it was a bear until you met him. Um, and, you know, he's, in in the bathroom, he's in the bathroom and doing these different things. So there's this human-like quality or given some of the privileges of a human being, which is, it's funny, it's enjoyable to read about these different situations. But also, he's used in the conversation with McPhee, at closer to the end of the book, um, he's used, you actually have a chapter where you're in Mr. Boltitude's psyche as far as what he understands is going on. So I think there's lots of ways that he's used to be instructional for us and teach us. And so, yeah, I think I think it's both. I think he's enjoyable, an enjoyable character, but also instructional.
2: It reminds me of Tinadrill talking to Ransom about the beasts around her and saying that it's her responsibility to make them older every day, more like humans. And yeah, you get that, that juxtaposition, that difference. The NICE is all about almost dumbing humanity down. Remember, this book is patterned after, or is the fictional companion to the philosophical book, The Abolition of Man. The NIC is abolishing humanity in humans. And what the company at St. Anne's is doing, Ransom specifically, is giving humanity to the animals, bringing them up to us. You can think of beasts that are giving the, given the power to, of speech by Aslan. And then if they, if they stray from that path of following Aslan, they become dumb beasts again. So you have a dumbing of the beasts, even humans included in that category, from the NICE. And you have the lifting up to Mr. Bultitude becoming one of the, the seven bears of Logers, right? And uh, he, he has a role. And even though he's coming from a, a more primitive type idea of consciousness... Because the direction his consciousness is moving is more toward humanity. He's actually more human than the unmen of the NICE. Okay, there were a lot of
1: cool things you hit on there. First I don't want to offend our pet owner friends out there. <laughs> <laughs> I know you're out there. And Alex recently had to say goodbye to um a longtime A
2: really good boy.
1: Yeah. Uh, Bowser. Yeah. Or a dog cool name too um but you see people who try to humanize their pets and specifically i can think of someone who uh used to take their dog to taco bell just to only feed it the taco meat out of the taco every <laughs> single day and i was like whoa you know that's next level no comment on that but to try and elevate them so much so that that and then maybe treat human beings awful, but elevate their pet to the status of almost holiness, um, which is inappropriate. But then the the other side of that is, I think that if you can try to elevate all beings around you and and help, I, I think of some of my favorite dogs are the ones that are really well-trained and you can tell they understand the relationship they have with their owner really well. They don't think they're the alpha. Um, They're so enjoyable to be around. And it's such a pleasant experience to have those animals around. Um, But then I also think of that that same, having that same attitude towards other human beings, to see them that no matter where you are on, I, I think our society puts you on a pedestal if you have an insanely high IQ, or if you can use all the right words and say all the right things. And there's so many of our society that's left behind just because they don't fit into that category. And that also makes me think about how the NIC is all about leaving people behind. Everybody was always trying to leave whoever was next to them behind in some pursuit of something that they thought was more important than the person next to them. Whereas the company was this come in, be part of this Let let us elevate you Ivy mags to the, our station as much as we should and can. So everybody got to just be their best self. I don't know. There's something really cool about that principle. Which I didn't think we'd go there from just starting at Mr. Bultitude, but
2: right, yeah. What comes to mind is the um, pretense versus pretend. When you, if, if we're going to practice on developing a godlike quality, we have this authority over the animals, as is depicted in Genesis, and if we use that authority to understand animals where they are, realizing that their consciousness is an extension of our consciousness. And you use that opportunity to raise them up rather than to just be overindulgent and doting. I mean, that's kind of a narcissism because they're just extensions of you. Mm -hmm. You know, you can see this happen with, with children sometimes too, where parents are overprotective and keep children from ever being able to develop and grow and what it means to be in a superior authoritative position over kids is not to shield them from the, from life but help them engage with life and that same sort of process can happen with animals um th- so there's like a perspective of you know when you, you you're talking to your dog your dog is not understanding your words they don't have that uh, that capacity for language they can hear certain sounds but you could say whatever you want with the same tonality as you typically give praise exactly <laughs> and they'll accept it as praise because what they're responding to is an emotional energy and yeah. they're very finely attuned to, to humans emotional energy that's what the, the difference between uh, canis lupus and canis domesticus right the, the dog and the wolf which are the same species is this process of being finely attuned to the emotional experience of humans Hmm. and when we see them in that position and we can help lift them and almost challenge them, the challenging comes through the training process. And this is one of my little pithy one-liners is you're never not training. No matter what you're doing, you're always training. So your kid or your dog, your kid or your dog. (laughs) And, and you know, the, the lines there are very blurred intentionally. That idea of understanding our lives and the training influence uh, our responsibility for interacting means that if we want to help our raise our animals to the level that they can acquire, which for some animals is an incredible amount of at least seeming consciousness and personality, we need to understand that they are but below us. They do depend on us and, and we're lifting them up. Same thing with children. And, and that seems that seems demeaning to the animal or to the child. <laughs> But I think I've said this before, when you look at a child as, and a child's behavior and you start to say you should know better and you're holding them to the standard of an adult and true moral development, it seems like all the, that expectation on a child is only hurting them. Now they're getting shamed by you. But if we see the development of children as largely being dependent on our education of them, ooh, that word education, maybe (laughs) I shouldn't use that one, our conditioning of them, Um, but our interaction and teaching of them, if we see children for where they are, which is subordinate to adults, and stop doing this thing that you'll see in almost every new movie directed toward teenagers is, kids are smarter than adults, and how irrational <laughs> is that and it's not helpful for anybody either and we need to really understand our responsibility and and Mr. Bultitude operates in that position as well the company at St. Anne's Ransom has this responsibility to lift not only the hum- his human counterparts but also the animals around him as far as the name though Mr. Bultitude I know that there were theories that it was based on some person I, I think that, that those have been debunked but as I, I don't, and what that means is I don't know, but also, uh, remember in the beginning of Paralandra, when Lewis is just saying, talking about the word haunted, wouldn't a child who'd never heard that word because of the quality of that first syllable in haunted kind of know what you meant? Mm-hmm. Doesn't Mr. Bultitude just sound like the name of a bear? It does. <laughs> it does. <laughs> Big blubbering. <laughs> <laughs> yes. For our audio clip, we have C.S. Lewis reading to us part of chapter 13. And um, you got a little teaser of that be- at the beginning of the episode. This is when Merlin is giving Ransom a little test.
0: Who is called Silva? What road does she walk? why is the womb barren on one side where are the cold marriages (coughs) (laughs) ransom replied silver is she whom mortals call the moon she walks in the lowest sphere the rim of the world that was wasted goes through her half of her orb is turned towards us and shares our curse the other half looks to deep heaven happy would he be who could cross that frontier and see the fields on her further side On this side, the womb is barren and the marriage is cold. There dwell an accursed people full of pride and lust. There, when a young man takes a maiden in marriage, they don't lie together, but each lies with a cunningly fashioned image of the other, made to move and to be warm by devilish arts. For real flesh won't please them, they are so dainty in their dreams of lust. Their real children, they fabricate by vile arts in a secret place.
2: I don't think we talked about the moon a lot.
1: I don't think we talked about that if you were to ascribe a voice to the name Mr. Bultitude, that's the one. <laughs> <laughs> if that bear could talk, he sounds
2: like C.S. Lewis. That's right. Remember when um, Phil Ostrato was talking about the, his program of sterilizing the earth. Mm-hmm apparently that process has already started and it's started with our attitude, even toward our place in nature. The womb is barren. What kind Keep of th- going. Okay. Well, then he <laughs> goes into talking about the ways that we interact in even our sexual lives and the process of procreation. And we've... Um, not maybe not us, but at least these beings on Solva, which is the moon, have they're incapable of satisfying the sexual desire through the experience of each other that they've fabricated this synthetic way of experiencing or satisfying their sexual lusts could that be applied to us? <laughs> <laughs> that's sad. <laughs> because it, yes, it, it definitely could be applied to us. <laughs> yeah. So seeing that as part of the fallen state of our desires and how we've, we you know, kind of cleanly figured out how to satisfy desires without responsibilities. Um, in the abolition of man, he kind of takes a hard line against contraception. Hmm. And I think that's something that even I'm, a little uncomfortable with because of how, um, how much we've given into the pressures of not taking the responsibility of our natural state in this world and how we want to pro we want to predict our futures and we want to make sure that nothing happens to us that's not planned. And that starts bringing up some of the themes and the morals of Paralandra. Even the floating islands, we want our, we want the islands of our lives to be so fixed and immovable. And part of the process of that is we sacrifice the fruit of the fo- floating islands to the point where the reason that these beings on the moon on Solva are incapable of satisfying, of satisfying each other's desires is because they've been, become numb to each other. And think of the ways that we've become numb to each other in our modern world. That makes me think of how often nowadays you hear
1: about how people are approaching their physical relationships with their spouses and how so much is intensely focused on the pleasure or the act itself and the relationship and the, the thing that you're supposed to be, that, that sex is supposed to be an expression of, is lost. And it's not even brought up. And, and we're blind to it. And people, people make it an end in and of itself, rather than just a, the fruit of a beautiful, deep relationship. Um, so that numbness that resonates a lot, that's, I mean, we're so, we're so far past numbness as it's complete blindness to what real love and all of the stuff we just talked about in this book between obedience and sacrifice and humility and all these, the right ingredients that Christ invites us to, to bring to a marriage and then sex like that's that's one of the beautiful fruits of of
2: that relationship, which should be the focus. But it's definitely a secondary thing. Yeah, it's even secondary to its result and in, in the bearing of children. And um, getting the first and second things backwards will ruin us to our experience of the natural world, using nature as a direction to our divine nature. And that, this is hard for me because I'm guilty and talking about the demands of a Christ-centered life and Christianity in, in areas that I'm probably too often search, searching for an excuse rather than honestly seeking for truth. So it's interesting that he brings that up and he does take a pretty decided angle on that part of our lives. And I think maybe if I'm not in in agreement, I don't know, it's okay to disagree with C.S. Lewis. But I don't think I can do that honestly because I know that he's a little more devoted than I am. You made the comment
1: about nature for the NIC versus nature for the company. And maybe you could expound on that a little bit.
2: Yeah, it's interesting to get the different perspectives of what humans are. What is the purpose of humans? And you get from Frost this attitude that humans ain't nothing but mammals, right? And so they're just acting on natural impulses in the way that an animal would. If you ask why your dog did something and it looks like it's feeling ashamed, all of those are responses to your energy. It has nothing to do with any sense of moral guilt, mostly fear of possible punishment. But uh, asking an animal why doesn't really make sense. They're just impulses and responding to impulses. And you see how Frost becomes this person who now can do nothing but respond to impulses. Even if there's this residual self lingering in the back of his mind protesting that he not light himself on fire. And he just has to go through the program of what he would call nature. Which really is just acting as a tool for the macrobes. And then you have... So that, that's, I think in our modern time, modern language, we'll call human nature, which I think is a misnomer. That's not human nature. It's the, it's the animal nature. And what human nature is, if, if you accept from the beginning the premise that we are children of God, then our nature is a divine nature. And if you can look at the progress of consciousness on a spectrum and the direction Let's say you have animal at one end, God at the end, other, and the NICE is an arrow pointing toward the animal. So you can take really intelligent people like Philostrato, and he might still act like a human, but his arrow, the direction, is pointing toward the animal. And you have something like Mr. Bultitude, who is an animal, but his arrow is pointing in the direction of godhood by uh, intersecting. Humanity halfway along the way, presu- you know, presuming that that trajectory can continue. So I'm not really sure if I know how to talk about nature or this division between good nature, bad nature. But I know that a lot of the responses and the using of that term is one of these obfuscations that pseudo-philosophies try to attack as a way of dumbing down humanity to nothing more than an animal. And this brings to mind this idea of even evolution. So I am a proponent of evolution, but not in the way that...
1: Keep listening. Don't cancel <laughs> us. <laughs>
2: <laughs> because I, in the same way that I would say I'm not a creationist, because I believe in the process of creation. I believe that it's a process. But you'll you'll hear these pseudo intellectual, uh, uh, po- oh, sorry these pseudo intellectual points about evolution as almost like ha crea- creationism is wrong, and one of the things that commonly comes up is um, man evolved from apes, which is factually untrue. But people you could see the the misguided understanding when you're motivated in your reasoning. I want to say that humans are animals. And so I take this animal that is a contemporary of humans and say, we came from that animal, but that is no more true than to say that apes evolved from humans because we both evolved from a similar ancestor that was neither ape nor human. That distinction Mm -hmm. didn't exist because that branching off hadn't happened yet. And because of that sort of attitude, if you take just for granted, because you want to be on the side of science or however that inner ring compels you, and you say, humans are animals, and this is the relationship here, you start to think that evolution is this process of progress, and that's another term that gets obfuscated a lot when talking about nature, as if nature just generally is this progressive thing. And you see that in the in the way that Frost talks about things, you know, it, it ought to continue because it's continuing and it will always work in the direction that uh, toward progress. But what is more evolved, an earthworm or a human?
1: And what that leads to is this idea that everything that's less evolved is no longer important, which even, I mean, that's why I think... Frost's end is met in fire. Because if you believe that, eventually you're just burned up along this path of progress.
2: (laughs) Yeah, with this degenerative process, almost this backward progress, right? Evolution is not a process of progression. Progression is the anomaly. And you can see in that the creative process And if we say, God can't create unless he creates the way that I have in my mind, think of that essay, Horrid Red Things. I have this concept of what creation means. And if it doesn't mean a pile of dust into a human, I don't want to hear about it. Like, well, you're making time a really important aspect to the processes of God, somebody who is timeless. Now, if he creates something and then we see the process of his creation, granted, evolution is not a process of progress, but when we see progress within it, I see the divine hand of God in that process and creating humans, where in other places, it created earthworms. Now, earthworms are important to the, you know, the 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 web of life. (laughs) I'm thinking of the Aquabats song, Worms Make Dirt. It's a good song. (laughs) My kids love it. Um, But yeah, but just to understand, Earthworms are actually more evolved than humans. Their lifespan is shorter, therefore they have so many more generative iterations. That's how long it takes. That's that's where evolution plays its role in every time we die and then we have progeny, right? Earthworms don't live as long as us. And so their process happens a lot faster. They're going through evolution way quicker than we are. We live too long. And so to break your mind away from this attitude that science just is thumbs up, it means progress, good, this, that, you know, but it's, it's being blind to a lot of important data. It's actually the unempirical religious type attitude that says humans are no different than animals and we ought to behave in a way that is directed by our human natures or our impulses. But that's not what it means to be a human. What it means to be a human is to be like Mr. Bultitude to overcome some of your natural inclinations and to do what you've been taught by the, your, your trusted authority. And so to overcome our human nature is actually our nature.
1: You just tied a beautiful bow on that. And isn't the line in the book that. I can't remember if it's Ivy Mags or who makes the comment, but after the animals come and have a conversation with Ransom, then they act different. Like they're part of the, you know, they're part of the group. He levels them up somehow in having a conversation with Ransom. Yeah. That word conversation it's is full of power. Yes. Yeah. That's what, it's the word conversation. That's what out. Yeah.
2: Okay. I think we've, uh, We've, uh...
1: Don't say beat the dead horse. We've talked too much about leveling (laughs) up
2: animals. (laughs) I was going to say that I beat it to death, but hopefully the opposite. We've we've, we've stroked (laughs) Mr. Bultitude's snout enough. Uh, Let's take a break.
1: All right, welcome back. To kick off, we are going to hear an audio clip from Carrie... And it sounds like we're gonna hear a little bit about a question regarding Wither.
2: Hey, Dan and Alex, this is Carrie listening to That Hideous Strength. I had two questions. First, I was curious, why did C.S. Lewis choose the title, That Hideous Strength? And my second question was, I wanted to hear you and Dan talk more about Wither and the way that he talks. It is not clear to the listener at all times you know, kind of indirect the way he talks, yet it is very sinister and threatening. So I wanted to hear you and Dan talk more about that and why he talks that way. Thanks. Yeah, do you know why it's called That Hideous Strength?
1: I don't. (laughs) I'm trying to think if I have a good guess. Uh, I'm thinking The Hideous Strength of Evil. That's where I'm at. Yep. There's definitely a feeling from that <laughs>
2: title. It's always difficult to tell somebody that you're reading that hideous strength because what is the operation of that word that? It's a it that's a preposition, right, in that phrase? And to uh, have a title beginning with the preposition almost feels like it's leading you to something.
1: Also, the word hideous is it's I mean, it's way past ugly. It's some common, when I think of hideous, I think of something that's like, has some type of evil mixed in.
2: in the, on the title page, it says, the shadow of that hideous strength, spelled with two Ds here, Sack smile and more, it is of length. What? I don't know what that <laughs> means. I think I'm, thinking, I'm reading in Middle English, and so I didn't realize it. Sir David Lindsay from Anna Dialogue. Describing the Tower of Babel. So it's a, uh, I'm, I'm not sure if that's a poem or a book or something. Lewis just assumes we understand because he assumes we have the, have the same academic background. <laughs> I'm just kidding. He probably doesn't assume. He's, he's allowing our animal understanding. He's trying to draw us up to his level. But uh, apparently that hideous strength is a refer- reference to the Tower of Babel or Babel. How do you say it? Babel. Okay. Tower of Babel. (laughs) Because the babbling (laughs) comes from it, right? That's right. And obviously, you get a Tower of Babel moment at the commencement or the inaugural banquet of the NICE. And I guess commencement, does commencement mean the end? Because if like college speeches, don't those happen at the end of the academic year? But commencement, it's like the beginning of the graduation. It's always confusing. It's the beginning of the rest of your life. <laughs> <laughs> Which has been said in probably one-third of all commencement addresses. Um, you obviously you have Veratrilbia coming in through Merlin and confounding the languages like in the Tower of Babel. But mm-hmm. also this almost like I, I think it's funny coming through an a university. And university is, especially these old ones usually have towers. And if you ever read the little portion, the, it's not an entire book, but it's a manuscript called the dark tower that, uh, that Lewis wrote after out of the silent planet, there actually is a tower and it is a university. And so these, this building, I don't know, seeing the ivory tower, the academic tower, the tower of the pro the. The programmed educational curriculum of our time, what we're being conditioned to learn is that hideous strength. So I like to think of it, the hideous strength as being what, what the, uh, agenda is for the propaganda that we're exposed to. So maybe the media is the hideous strength and ransom even points that out to Merlin that they're incapable of making a charge on this NICE and fighting it in the old style because the danger of that hideous strength that covers the whole world almost does it in the by the mechanism of the media so
1: i might be strangling the golden goose here but this is why our readers need to send us the comments while we're in the book, because it would have helped me to have realized the title <laughs> reference, The Tower of Babel, while I was reading this. Now I'm looking back like, man, it lo- so many missed insights. No, see, I, I really, could have been pondering. I really like
2: this, because you get to experience it without all of this pre-programmed bias. Like when I said at the beginning of these episodes for That Hideous Strength, I suggested not reading The Inner Ring essay.
1: Alex has the nicest ways of telling me that
2: <laughs> You're green. Accept <laughs> it. No, that's C.S. Lewis. It's all about the enjoyment, and if you get too contemplative about it, you might miss it. Did you enjoy your read of that hideous strength? Loved it. You're welcome. <laughs> for- <laughs> <laughs> on behalf of C.S. Lewis, so- <laughs> no, I'm just going to take credit for so- <laughs> everything that happens. Here.
1: You are a hero. We did talk about that <laughs> last time right. I mean, I pressed three numbers every- on a phone. <laughs> All right. So her next question about Wither and the way he spoke, and I love that she hit on this because that's something every time Wither was talking, it was so clear that this man has an objective anytime he communicates to obfuscate, to misdirect, to never, you can never pin him down for anything he said because did he really say it? Right. Dad was you
2: know he's a perfect politician <laughs> exactly unfortunately because the power that he's operating and controlling other people by is exactly this desire to be in the inner ring as soon as that's satisfied he, he or would be satisfied he loses power think of this when we would, in the same way that we talked about if you go about dating as like a game mentality then when you win the game it loses its appeal to you. Don't do that with humans. It's not moral and it's not prudent, not for your own sake. Do not play with people like chess pieces. So you can see his ability to keep people always like in this limbo of whether they belong or not always with this attitude of cordiality, like, oh, of course you're welcome here. And in those moments, that's when Mark feels like the least secure because it almost feels disinterested. He is a tool. his is a tool for the macrobes, and he's the perfectly honed tool for keeping people in this, the desire for the inner ring. In the same way that Frost is, I think he's even described as like a needlepoint sharp tool for expressing objectivity and this pseudo philosophy of the projection of humanity, which is its own destruction and his destruction wither is exactly the tool to keep you in this limbo of belonging and making you desire belonging over every other good thing and sacrifice everything else to it.
1: That reminds me of Wither and Frost conversation where they're both admitting to each other that they've talked about them to the macrobes about how the other person falls short or they don't like their style of doing things, but they, they don't realize that really the macrobes are just directing them in, in being the tool they need, in Wither being that tool of confusion and um, aloofness and whatever to keep people out of the inner ring and Frost being the a sharp tool that can stab when they need to stab i guess
2: yeah there's this dynamic tension between both of their pressures but both operate on a in a dimension and on a spectrum that is off of the path of goodness yeah it's all quantitative and it's this way or that way and it keeps people in this tension And makes it so they can never really see that the company of these people is detestable.
1: Uh, Frost's goal is to hate you if you're his inside of his inner ring. Yeah, he
2: wouldn't want to like you, right? Heaven forbid. What it reminded me of is of when you're getting an injection, and a very schooled nurse will like almost hit or pat the po- the place that they're going to inject you with. Push in and let relax and and you know agitate it. That's what that's the word that I was looking for. It's an agitation of opposite forces to numb you to the f- point where you're injected with something. Yikes! <laughs> that's that's what they're doing. They're keeping everybody in this tension. I, there's this conversation that uh, Wither has on the phone with Stone, and Stone is a good character that can kind of be forgotten about. Mark tries to have a conversation with him once, and Stone wants to deny everything that Mark's observing about the precarious situation that Stone apparently is in. We don't know what his gre- what his uh, transgression was, but Mark comes into Wither's office, and one of the things that Wither says to him is, "If only I could convince ha- Hardcastle or Mister Studdick to see you and your uh, your efforts in the light that I see it in." Yeah. He even uses Mark Studdick as one of the people that is apparently not accepting Stone into the group. yeah, Mark doesn't know he's being used this way. In fact, really the opposite. He's He wants to hear from Stone. He wants to like enter into this conversation and be like, what are we doing here? But Wither will use everybody against everybody else. He's just operating as this tool of obfuscation.
1: And even that it was described as their own inner ring, between yeah. Mark and the tramp. So what did, what did you see in that relationship?
2: Yeah, belonging's not bad. It's just not good. It itself is a desire that leads you to certain forks in the road, moral forks in the road. It is something that you can use for good. The, the community of virtuous people is a beautiful thing. And, or even a neutral person compared to the community of evil and what mark realizes in this situation where he's partnered up almost against his will he wasn't seeking it out It wasn't an inner ring that he was looking for and probably would have not even cared about if he'd seen it before all of a sudden is in this position where he's getting a lot of belonging from somebody who can't they don't even really understand each other except that they both have this one program do not tell anything to those bad guys <laughs> <laughs> That's like the one thing that they're meeting on, but it's at least it's a, in the direction of virtue. It might still be pre- self-preservation, but it's, a, but it's an affront to the evil. And in juxtaposition with th- his previous desire to get into the inner ring and, and intermittently he's being brought to the objective room and he feels these waves of desire come over him and frighten him. And then he goes and with this very simple person who is kind of like an animal but of no fault of his own because of a history of being treated inhumanely. It's not his fault that he has not been treated like a human because of that. His arrow is potentially pointing in the right direction, or at least not pointing anywhere on that spectrum. So Mark's getting this comparison. Oh, what I really wanted this desire to belong can be satisfied with this tramp who only really cares about the animal appetites of being here at this perpetual banquet of trying, you know, because they think he's Merlin and trying to make sure that he's in good spirits. And they both get to enjoy stuff that it's actually enjoyable for a change. Hmm. I love that.
1: What's always interesting to look for is where the people who are blinded by ego and pride are so blind the fact that there's a tramp sitting there and they can't see it and all they see is does this person have power and how can we how can we manipulate or control this power for our ends and so it doesn't let them see what's sitting in front of their faces Uh, versus if you're coming from the company side and you're not looking to control somebody you're just looking for what they are and what they want to offer and can offer then It's just a different equation and it opens your eyes and you're willing to come at things more humbly. So, so I think that, that's what was really instructive for me was the, the blindness that evil leads you to.
2: Right. And be a scientist about it. If, if your program is leading you to a point where you can't tell the difference between good and evil anymore, you're probably on the wrong road. You, you need to reassess if the world is getting more confusing to you because of the the world paradigm that you've accepted, then it's not leading you to truth.
1: This might be more of a tangent that we want to go down right now,
2: but there's, I, I
1: don't know, popular thought around not turning everyone in the world into heroes and villains. And for some people, that can take them into a gray area of never calling anything evil, and also not being sure if you can call anything good because, well, no one's perfectly good, everyone has their faults, and, oh, well, no one's completely evil, everyone has their virtues. And it's seen as a as a virtue to see the world in more of a spectrum, to, to, to live in the gray and to see more gray. But what we're talking about here is, I, I mean, the comment you made is being if you are on a path that doesn't allow you to see the contrast, then take note, maybe get off that path, might not be a good path. So maybe help me balance those
2: two ideas. The path to godhood that Eve chose was to be know the difference between good and evil. If you're going to operate on that path, the evidence will be good and evil become unmasked to you. You'll, you'll be discovering, you'll be filled with truth and that truth will operate as a defining dialectic. So if you get to a point where I I don't know, all these things that I thought were bad, maybe they're good. And all the things that I thought were good, maybe are bad. It looks like you're heading in the direction of obfuscation, of muddling, of confusion. And Dimble talks about, you know, everything he's, this is the thing that he's talking about with Marjorie, um, where everything's coming to more of a point and where Merlin operated in this space, of more of a gray part of history where you could be more gray. See, he's showing that direction. If they're actually the true progress is from confusion to understanding. So if you're, you see that part of your progress, you're coming to more further light and truth, more knowledge, more wisdom, good. That's evidence that what you're doing is learning, but you can unlearn things. You can make yourself stupid. And a lot of that process will be pretending you don't know things that you already know. The problem with making yourself stupider than you yeah, really you'll, are. you'll succeed. <laughs> so you see that a lot in the world, people succeeding at making themselves stupider than they really are. And maybe there was room for that in the past. Maybe there was honest ignorance in the past, but we're getting too far down this history, this path of history.
1: So let's hit on that real fast, because that was one of our final questions we wanted to hit on from our book club was you have the principle of an unchanging God. And then you also have Lewis talks about the way Merlin behaved in the past was, it was borderline, but it was somewhat appropriate versus now it just is inappropriate. It's no longer right. And why? What? Maybe what is Lewis trying to teach us with this evolution of how behavior in the past might be
2: uh, more appropriate than it is today? You can look at the history of humanity, of humankind, as almost macrocosmic for the individual's journey. There is progress that's happening through history with, with, you know, you could say every time that God's hand has come and, uh, touched humanity and there's been pro- there's been progress that's made, whether in ethics or, um, specifically religious doctrine or even inventions in science that we're moving toward this direction of what it means to be more like God, something that's good and at least very definable. He was always the same. It's humanity that's changing and evolving. And we, if we don't really get on the true progressive train, remember the analogy of, I I think it's in the abolition of man, the analogy of being on a train doesn't, you can't tell what direction you're going unless the station is fixed and God is that station and the direction that we're going only makes sense if the station isn't moving with the train. So that's the progress that we're getting from Merlin to our modern day is even the way that we interact with nature requires some responsibility from us. We can't just dabble in dirt, but there's some things that have been left or have been I think imprudently left behind in the time of Merlin. What does he say? Um, by the laws of his order, he's un, in, or not allowed to use a sharp object on any growing thing. <laughs> and it's interesting; he needs that law. But I think we've forgotten that what it means to be to have power in this natural world is stewardship. It doesn't mean control. It's not the the oppression through obedience that Hardcastle wants on her torture victims. It's the invitation that Ransom is calling from his subjects, and they are subjects. They're subject to his will, but he's using that power to draw them up to his stature. So that's the progress because God is helping us individually become more like him. Of course, you're going to see through the history of the world, this type of progressive development in the right places. And in other places, it's going backward and that some going backward or some ideas and some beliefs and some data points going backward and some going forward, that separation is creating a greater Divide, and that greater divide is a greater definition. Good and evil in a lot of ways might seem confusing, but they're actually a lot more clear now. I think back then you had justification for maybe being a good person on the wrong side. And now the only people who are really confused are the ones who kind of want to be. Because we know that in ignorance there is excuse. And what Christianity demands of us is stop using excuses, take responsibility.
1: This has been phenomenal season two. It's been cool to see so many new members of our book club jumping on. Alex and I were talking before about how it's clear that some readers have all jumped in for the space trilogy, Um, that maybe didn't follow us through Narnia and it's gonna be fun to see people jump on through Screwtape Letters since obviously this has been one people are excited about. So thank you as always for joining us and being in our book club. Uh, We hope you'll continue with us. We will take a break of a few weeks before we jump into the Screwtape Letters and so look for you know on our Instagram or we'll announce kind of what to expect and when we'll be releasing the uh, starting season three. If you'd like to participate with comments, questions, uh, criticisms, or corrections, you can email us a message or voice memo at bookclub at And as always, please subscribe, rate and review on the podcast app. Also, we still want your voice memos. If you're catching up on the hideous strength and you feel like there's some part that we never talked about that you really would love to hear discussed, just send them whenever you have them. And it's easy for us to to spend 20 more minutes talking about that hideous strength. We would enjoy nothing more. See you next week. See you next week. Or
2: see you next time. (laughs) See see you next time. (laughs) The audio clip from this episode can be purchased at rabbitroom.com under the title The Lost Lewis Tapes.